So one of the one of the beautiful things about God's word is that no matter how long you study it, you will never learn all that there is to learn. Yeah, amen. You will never exhaust God's word each time you return to it. It has something to teach us. It shapes us. It transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. Sometimes we return to a passage that we know well only to find that there is a truth there that we had previously overlooked as we had studied the passage in the past. How many of you have had a similar experience? Most of us, that's good. Well, that was my experience as I studied Daniel chapter 3. This is one of the more famous passages in the entire Bible. It's an incredible story of God miraculously delivering his faithful servants. And most of us, if not all of us, know this story very well. And so as I began studying this, I had in my head what the main thrust of this passage was. I had in my head what the shape of this sermon would look like. But as I dug into the text, I found that this this story, this passage is about much more than deliverance. It is about that, and there is that throughout it. But I think that more than that, this, pa- this passage is a, a challenge to believers living in a secular culture to decide who they will worship. In Exodus, after the golden calf incident, Moses commanded the people to decide if they were on the Lord's side or not. Are you on the Lord's side? Will you be obedient or will you be against him? Just before Joshua died, after the Israelites had entered into the promised land, he told them, decide who, will, who you will worship. Will you worship the Lord or will you worship the gods of the Canaanites? And I think in a similar vein, this passage is an appeal to those Jews living in exile, asking them, who will you serve? Will you serve the gods of Babylon or will you serve the God of Israel? And and this is especially relevant for us today. All all sorts of things are vying for our attention, for our worship every single day. And so you and I, as followers of Jesus, must continually answer this question. Who will I worship? Who am I going to give my time and my energy and my devotion to? Or what will I give those things to? And this chapter reminds us of the proper answer to that question. So open your Bibles with me, and let's read from Daniel chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 to start. Starting in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth breadth, breadth 6 cubits. I apologize, can't talk today. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. <clears throat> so we don't know exactly, precisely when the events of this chapter took place. It seems most likely that it happened in the earlier days of the king's reign. So probably shortly after the events of chapter 2. Now I know we took a week off from Daniel. Pastor Brian was here last week. But hopefully you, rem you remember what we talked about two weeks ago with the giant statue from Daniel chapter 2. And if you remember, then you'll see some similarity here. Chapter 2 centered around the king's dream where he saw this, this incredible statue and it represented the succession of world kingdoms all leading toward the establishment of Christ's kingdom here on earth. It seems here that the king took note of this dream because now he builds a massive statue of his own. But this is not quite the same. In the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar represented the gold head of the statue. It represented the greatness of Babylon. But this statue that he committed, commissioned here is made entirely of gold. <clears throat> now the text doesn't tell us whether this is a statue of a god, of one of his Babylonian gods, or if it's a statue of himself. Most scholars believe it was a statue of one of the gods of Babylon. Personally, I believe this is a statue of the king. I, I think being the head of the gold statue, or the gold part of the statue in his dream in chapter 2, I think that inflated his ego, and it planted this idea of building a statue that represented not only worldly kingdoms in general, but it was meant to flaunt his own greatness, his own power and prestige. And it certainly did that. It's described as uh, 90 feet tall. But what's strange here is it's not just 90 feet tall. It's 90 feet tall, but only 9 feet wide. 90 by 9 feet. I don't know if you can imagine that, but that would be a very odd-looking statue. Uh, I don't know that a statue like that could even stand up by itself. Um, and, and so these strange proportions have led many scholars uh, to conclude that this account, you know, it must not be a historical account. But there's a lot of plausible explanations here. I'm just going to give you one, the one that I think is most likely, but there's several others as well. A lot of scholars also think that this was, the statue was set up on essentially what was a big square base or foundation. And they've, there's archaeological evidence to support this kind of statue base as well, even some in this region of ancient Babylon. So I think most likely what happened was that the, the statue itself was not 90 feet, but the statue plus the base, the foundation it was built upon, was 90 feet tall with the, the gold statue at the very peak for everybody to look on and see. <clears throat> now these opening seven verses, they serve two purposes. I think that it emphasizes and highlights the extent of the king's power, but it also points out the foolishness of human idolatry. And I think that Daniel does these things through the way he, he repeats certain aspects of the passage. He uses a lot of repetition here. You probably caught it while I was reading through it. And it's not just these seven verses. It's, it's the whole chapter. He repeats these different phrases and lists. So first, we see this list of the king's officials and subjects. 
the satraps, the, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials. So each of these serve as administrators, leaders in the empire, and their sole job is to carry out the king's will. Daniel could have covered all that and just said all the, all the officials were there or all the king's subjects were there, and he could have covered them all in one fell swoop, but he doesn't. He lists out every single position, and then he lists out every single position again in the very next verse. And I think in dragging these, this list out, reporting it back to back, Daniel's showing us, emphasizing the, the scope of the king's power. Look at all of the people that the king has at his beck and call. The king sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of his officials. And as soon as he did, they all came running. No one has anything more important to do than the king's bidding. And we see the same thing in verses 4 to 7 with the list of instruments and, and the king's decree. The king, through his herald, proclaims this decree, gives the instructions that when all this music plays, you bow down and worship. If you don't, you're going to get fried up in the furnace. Verses 4 to 6 give these instructions, and then in verse 7, he repeats the exact same instructions. But it's to show us the obedience of his subjects. The king commands, the people follow, period. The goal here is demonstrating the authority and the power of the king. But there's another phrase that's repeated several times here. And Daniel writes this impressive statue, this 90-foot statue. It's an image that the king set up. And he repeats a form of that phrase uh, five times, just in these first seven verses, and eight times if you include the whole chapter. Daniel is shining a giant spotlight on the origins of this statue. He's telling us over and over and over and over, the statue's nothing. Yes, it's impressive because it's tall, it's made of gold, but it's a human creation. It's set up by the king simply to stroke his own ego. You ever tell somebody a joke and they don't get it, so you have to repeat it back to them? And you keep repeating it multiple times, and every time you get to the punchline, you slow down and pause for a little bit, and then finally they get it. The light bulb goes off and they understand the joke, but it's not funny anymore because you've said it too many times. That's what Daniel's doing here. He's showing how this whole ceremony, it, it, it was worshiping an idol made by the king. The statue that the king made, that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. This isn't a god. This is a human creation. Why would you worship something created by a human? It can't do anything at all for you. It's not alive. It can't hear you. It can't answer your prayers. And so I think Daniel, in a way, is just mocking this whole ceremony through his repetition. He's showing us how foolish idolatry is. And that's number, number one, my first point, that all idolatry is foolishness. And it's important for us to stop and remember this because, unfortunately, we are often prone to drift into idolatry. We may not be bowing down or singing to a golden statue, but worship is more than the outward act of bowing down or singing. At the heart of worship is obedience. It's devotion. Right? We will obey the one that we worship. We will devote our time and our energy to the one or to the thing we worship. When we choose to disobey God, 
to be a little bit dishonest so we can pad our bank account a little bit more. We have not offered God our worship. We are worshiping finances. If we disregard what God has said about sexual purity and embrace sexual sin, we are not worshiping God. We're worshiping our own lust. When you devote all of your time and your energy to building a comfortable life, you are not worshiping God, but some false sense of fulfillment that the world has sold to you. The question that this passage asks of God's people is, who will you worship? Will you worship God alone, regardless of the pressure that you may face because of it? Or will you crumble underneath that pressure and worship lesser things that are not deserving of your worship? So these opening seven verses, they set the stage for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to answer exactly that question. Who are they going to worship? Continue reading with me in verses 8 through 15. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. So verse 8, it it sort of summarizes the dialogue that we read in verses 9 through 15. It tells us what the Chaldeans did. They come and they accuse the Jews. And then verses 9 through 15, they tell us what they did, how they did it. So we read that the Chaldeans maliciously accused the Jews. And that phrase literally reads, they ate the pieces of the Jews. And this is a, a, an Aramaic idiom for, for severe verbal attack. These Chaldeans, are, they are out for blood. They want to ruin and destroy these three Jewish men. A close English equivalent of this phrase might be uh, to be chewed out. If you get chewed out by your boss, they are laying into you, they're screaming at you for whatever reason, they're angry with you. But I think this Aramaic phrase is probably a little bit more severe than that. But these Chaldeans, they begin with the the standard greeting, O king, live forever. And then we find uh, some more repetition here, another repetition of the king's instructions. The same list of instruments, the same commands, and the same consequence is given here again. And and just like in the first seven verses, it stresses the authority of the king and and his right to demand worship. And, And the Chaldeans, they're using these instructions to frame themselves as loyal, humble, obedient servants. 
and they're using it to frame the Jewish men as arrogant, ungrateful, and disobedient. They're essentially saying, King, you, you commanded us to, to worship your image when we heard the music, and you said that if we didn't, we'd be thrown into the fire. We listen to you, King. We respect you. We hear your commands, and we obey your word. We worship your image. But these Jews that you promoted, that you appointed over the affairs of Babylon, they couldn't care less about your commands. And this statement is pretty revealing about, uh, it reveals their motive to us. <clears throat> so these, these were probably ethnically Babylonian. Chaldeans can be, it's a title, but it's also an ethnic designation as well. These Babylonians, these Chaldeans, I think were jealous that the Jews had been promoted over them because there's no other reason for them to designate that these three men are Jews. So they remind the king of his instructions and, and, and also the great honor he bestowed on these three Jewish men. He says, you promoted them and this is how they repay you with disobedience, by paying no attention to your word, they won't serve your gods and they won't bow down to the statue you set up. They have no respect for your authority, king. And some, as I've said earlier, assume that this reference to the king's gods indicate their statue was of the king's god, but I think this is better seen as a jab at these men for their Jewishness. They're, they're painting these, these men as disrespectful, arrogant. They, they won't worship, they're not like us. They won't worship our gods, and they do not respect you. And this enrages the king. He, he's furious that anyone would dare defy his authority, especially those who he, who he has given such great honor to in the first place. And so he calls for these three men to be brought before them so he can question them himself. And when they're brought in, we really see the peak of the king's arrogance. He asks the Jewish men, are these accusations true? Do you really refuse to bow down to my image? But he doesn't even allow for them to respond. He just keeps talking because he expects them to obey. Now that they are in his presence, he can't comprehend that they would disobey him. And so he asks a question, he continues, and he just says, well, if you're ready now, you can obey my instructions. And when this music plays, you're going to fall down and you're going to worship. If you do that, we'll forgive your stubbornness. We'll forgive your arrogance. Everything is well and good. But if you do not, you will be cast into the fiery furnace. And then the king's arrogance reaches an all-time high in the final statement in verse 15. when he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? The king is placing himself above every God, including his own, but more so over the God of Israel. This isn't a challenge to these Jewish men as much as it is to their God. He's saying, think carefully before you defy me, before you disobey me, because I'm in control. I'm the one with the power. If you do not worship me and my image, your God will not be able to save you. Now, the king has seen that the God of Israel is wise. He can reveal secret and hidden things. He revealed the meaning of his dream to him. But in his arrogance, he believes that, the king, that, that God is just that. He, he's simply a wise God. He didn't stop him from conquer, conquering the nation of Judah. So in the king's mind, God doesn't have the power to compete with him. And he certainly cannot deliver these three men from his hand. 
Think about the pressure that these three men were facing to worship something other than their God. Obviously, you have the, the, the pressure from authority to worship the statue. Right? This statue was worthless. It wasn't alive. It had no quality that made it worth worshiping. But this king has earthly authority to do whatever he pleases. He could kill them and no one would question it. Nobody would bat an eye over it. And this king has said, if you value your life, you will worship my statue. But there's also a cultural aspect to this. There's a level of peer pressure here. How many of you guys remember the the Rack Shack and Benny episode of VeggieTales? Good. That's a great one. That was one of my favorite ones growing up. They have the giant bunny bow down and sing the bunny song. Great episode. But it, it paints a little bit of an incorrect picture when it comes to what this ceremony looked like. Because in that episode, there's like 13 people in front of this giant bunny and the king's right behind him looking at all of them. That is not what this was like. This was a massive ceremony. All of the king's workers and subjects, they were here for this. We're talking hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people here. And, and this wasn't a few instruments. This was a massive orchestra. This was, he was putting on a production here. So imagine yourself in this situation. This is like a stadium of people. There's this incredible grand orchestra, and as it starts to play, you look around, and every single person in this crowd falls down and bows before this statue. And you and your two friends are the only ones that remain standing. That's a lot of peer pressure. Like, I get anxious making phone calls, right? And these people are just, like, they're just looking around at all these people falling down to the ground. How much easier would it have been for them to say, I'll just bow down. It's not worth the headache. It doesn't have to mean anything. We'll just pretend. But they refused to worship anything other than their God, even under extreme pressure and under threat of extreme consequence. Now, the king and the crowd weren't explicitly telling them, you can't worship your God. It was just telling them, worship something other than your God as well. But that's not how it works. We don't get to worship God and something else. When we choose to worship something else alongside of God, all we're really doing is is withholding the worship that God deserves. This is ultimately the temptation that these three men face. And it's a temptation that I think we face today because the world pressures us to withhold worship, to withhold the worship that God deserves. That's my second point. The world pressures us to withhold the worship that God deserves. We're not being forced to worship a statue or abandon our God. or We're not under threat of death. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world face that scenario every day. But I think for us, in our context, we can relate more closely to the cultural pressure that these three felt. We face pressure from our friends, from our family, our bosses, teachers, classmates, from the culture around us, from our own sinful desires to worship things that are not God. The world pressures us to set God aside and pursue the things that it tells us are good. And we have to choose. Will we worship God or will we worship the idol of acceptance so that we can be a little bit more popular and well-liked? Will we worship God or will we worship our career and our finances? Will we do what God has commanded us to do? Or will we worship ourselves by indulging in our sinful desires and habits? 
I'm going to brag about my wife for a minute, uh, but this is a great example. My wife, she no longer works, uh, praise the Lord, she's able to be home with our two kids, um, but when she did, she was passed over a promotion multiple times, and the reason she was given for being passed over was that you're too kind, and you're too compassionate, and you're too patient with our patients who come in and call. You're not rude enough, you're not mean enough, you're not unkind enough. And it was really frustrating for her because she's like, I'm doing the right thing. And this is what God has commanded me to do. And I'm getting overlooked for it every time. But her desire was, was not to make a little bit more money. I mean, it was, but that wasn't her highest desire. Her desire was to be obedient to God. That was greater than her desire for a promotion. Are you willing to be obedient to God, to offer him exclusive worship, even if it comes at a cost to you? That's at the heart of this passage, that's the question these men had to answer. And it's a question that each of us need to answer every single day as well. <clears throat> Let's look again at the text and read verses 16 through 25. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it, than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire was killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So the king has given his, his second chance to these three men, their chance to bow down and worship the statue, but they do not take it. And instead, they tell the king, we don't owe you an answer for this. We're not going to apologize for our actions here. They do not regret their decision to remain standing. And I think there's something even in, in there that we can take away from this. You will not regret standing for the Lord, but you will regret worshiping idols and, and pursuing what the world has said is good in contrast to what God has said is good. But they don't defend their actions. They made their decision, and they're going to stick to it. They do, however, address the consequences they are facing and the challenge that the king has made toward their God. And verses 17 and 18, these are key to understanding the whole chapter. The commitment that these three men have to worshiping God is not dependent on their deliverance. And I actually, I think the ESV translation sort of muddies 
the motivation of these three men here, and I should have put this on the screen, and I, and I did not, so I apologize. But the ESV, it implies a greater level of certainty about God's deliverance than I think is actually reflected in the original language. I think a more faithful translation would be to say, if our God, whom we are serving, exists, then he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he can deliver us out of your hand. If our God, whom we serve, exists, then he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he can deliver us out of your hand. And if we adopt that translation, these men, they're not questioning the existence of God. They're simply replying to the king's challenge in verse 15, because the king implied that there is no such God, that no God exists who can save you from my hand. And so what they're saying is, well, if our God does exist, and he does, then he can save us from the furnace and from your hand, O king. They are 100% sure that God has the capacity to save them. They have no idea if he will. And what they say in verse 18 is so important. They tell the king, our God can save us, but know this king, even if he doesn't, even if he lets us burn, we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the statue that you have set up. And I love their response because not only does it demonstrate their commitment to the Lord, but they also prove that the king is not as powerful as he thinks he is. This whole ceremony was intended to show off how great and powerful the king is. He calls his people, they come running. He tells them what to do and they do it immediately, no questions asked. But they're showing here the king does not have absolute power and authority. He can kill them, sure, but he is powerless to force them to worship his image. And their refusal to obey him, it fills them with fury. It says his expression, his face, his facial expressions changed toward them. He is losing his mind in anger. Angry beyond all reason. There's smoke coming out of his ears at this point. His face is all red. He cannot handle this. He wants them to pay for insulting his authority. And so he commands the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. His guards bind them up and cast them into the fire. But because of the urgency, apparently they didn't take enough time to protect themselves. And the flames were so intense that it overtook and killed his own men as they, throwed Shadrach, as they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. <clears throat> but then, King is astonished. He's shocked because as he peers into the furnace, he sees something that he cannot believe. And he's so confused that he has to double-check his math with his counselors. He says, how many guys did we throw in there? I thought there was three, but I'm seeing four guys in there. And none of them are tied up. None of them are hurt. They're just walking around. And there's a fourth one in there who looks like a son of the gods. And I love this image. This, this image always makes me laugh because they're, they're chucked into the fire and they're just, they're just walking around. They're not like huddled together, like hoping they don't die. They're just having a good time, enjoying it, walking around, getting their steps in. In my head, they're giving each other high fives, making jokes about how cold it is or something. I don't know. <clears throat> but these three men, they refused to compromise their worship. They insisted that they would worship God and God alone. And God delivered them. Now, there's a lot of debate over who this fourth person was. Was it an angel or was it Jesus? The king describes the fourth man as having the appearance of the son of the gods. This is not the same as saying he was like the son of God. The king doesn't have any context or concept of the son of God. He's saying this is a divine being. This is not a human person. 
And later at the end of the chapter, he'll call him an angel anyway. So the king's description really doesn't help us out here. Most people, if you open up most commentaries, they're going to tell you this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. By pre-incarnate, I mean prior to Jesus taking on human flesh and being born as a baby. I personally am undecided on whether I think there are any pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, but I think the context of Daniel leans heavily in favor of this fourth man being an angel. We see a lot of angels in Daniel. You'll see a lot of them in, in the later chapters. They bring Daniel visions and messages uh, in the book. Later on in the lion's den, it's an angel who is sent to rescue Daniel and shut the mouths of the lions. So it seems more consistent with what we find in the rest of the book to understand this as an angel. But whether this was an angel or Jesus, the point is God delivered his servants in a miraculous way. Now God does indeed deliver his servants here. But I think it would be a mistake for us to walk away from this passage with the assumption that if we just remain faithful, God will deliver us from our trials. And I've heard this passage preached in this way. This book was written to Jewish people living in exile. This chapter served as an example to them. It was a reminder of the power of the God that they served, but it was not a promise that proper worship wouldn't lead to hardship in their life. I think this shows the opposite. The, the example here was to be faithful to worship God even if you have no idea if you'll be delivered from your trials. So I think a better takeaway from this passage is that proper worship does not guarantee deliverance from earthly trials. That's point number three. Proper worship does not guarantee deliverance from earthly trials. Can God deliver us from our trials? Absolutely. Does he? Read the New Testament. He certainly does not. God does promise deliverance to all of his people, but not immediate deliverance from the trials of this life. He does not promise that we're going to escape persecution or the social pressure to conform and worship something other than God. He doesn't promise that we won't lose friends or status or money or something else in our pursuit of God. Look at John the Baptist. Jesus himself said, this is the greatest man that has ever been born. And what happened to him? A girl danced at a party and impressed the ruler and said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. That was the greatest man that had ever lived, and that was his fate. He was not, he was not delivered from that immediate trial. He was delivered he is now in the presence of Jesus. He has been ultimately delivered, but he was not spared from that trial. In Christ, we have been guaranteed ultimate and final deliverance, but we will face trials in this life. We will be pressured to conform. We're going to be persecuted if we refuse to embrace the world's idolatry. But we can be confident in our ultimate deliverance that one day that trial, that pain, that suffering, that persecution will cease and we will be free of it with Christ. <clears throat> but as I said, most of the time that I have studied this passage, most of the time I've heard this passage taught, the emphasis I have placed and I've heard others place is on deliverance. But if we keep our focus only on the deliverance, I think we're missing the point. Because what ties this whole passage together is not deliverance, it is worship. Who will we worship? Will we worship what the world tells us to? Will we invest our time and energy into what the world says is worthy? 
Or will we worship God and God alone, even if it invites hardship and mistreatment? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they worshiped God alone. But it was not dependent on deliverance. It wasn't because they knew God was going to spare them from the fire. They worshiped God because God deserves it. The pressure and the consequence, it didn't matter to them because they knew only one thing is truly worthy of our worship, God himself. Let's finish reading the last five verses here. Verses 26 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the king gets as close as he can to this furnace without dying like his soldiers, and he calls these three men out. And he calls them servants of the Most High God. So he's had a change of heart here, because three minutes ago he was telling them that their God didn't exist and that he didn't have the strength to deliver them. But now he is the Most High God. He's probably trying to save face because he was just talking a lot of smack. I don't think this is indication of any kind of of, uh, conversion here yet. So as the men exit the furnace, all of the king's officials, they they witness it firsthand. They saw uh, that the fire did not even burn them. It didn't singe their hair. There was no pain. There was no smell of smoke. This fire had no power over these men. And in this moment, all of the king's subjects that gathered together to flaunt the king's power, to to pay tribute to his authority, all of these subjects see that this king actually has very little power. Because his ability to execute those who defy him, that really was the source of his power. Like, if you do what I don't want, I can kill you, so do what I want. He could silence through execution, but now he doesn't even have that authority. And this is why I say the deliverance isn't really the main theme of this chapter. This miraculous deliverance, it was just the means by which God showed the king who is truly in charge. God is the one who is sovereign and powerful. The king cannot execute anyone unless God permits it. Even the fire itself obeys the Lord. It does not obey the king. So in chapter 2, the king learned that the God of Israel is infinite in wisdom, that there's no God that can match that wisdom, no person who knows what he knows. And here in chapter 3 now, he learns that there's no God or person that can match the God of Israel in power and strength. And the king's change of heart continues in 28 through 30 as he blesses these three men. He applauds them for their faithfulness, their refusal to compromise, even if it meant their own lives. And then he blesses their God for this miraculous display of power. 
he makes a new decree that anybody who says anything bad about the God of the Jews, their house will be laid in ruins and they will be ripped limb from limb because there is no other God who can rescue in this way. And again, this is not a true conversion. That'll come in chapter four. The king is trying to save his own skin here. All of this is an effort to gain favor from the God that he was just talking smack about. But through this deliverance, God was showing the king and all of his subjects, there is nobody else like God. No one can do what God does. And this is why the three men were willing to risk their lives. They knew their God. They knew who he was. They knew that nothing can match his power. They know that nothing in all of creation is truly deserving of worship. Only God deserves it. He's in a class of his own because no one and no thing can do what he does. The exile and this trial didn't change that. By the nature of who God is, he deserves our obedience. And that was the motivation for these three men. They didn't need the promise of immediate deliverance to be obedient. There simply was nothing else worthy of obeying and worshiping. God deserves exclusive worship because there is no one else like him. That's the big idea of, of this sermon today. God deserves exclusive worship because there is no one else like him. We see a similar sentiment in John chapter 6. Jesus delivers a hard teaching to his followers. And many of the men and women who had been calling themselves disciples decided they could no longer follow Jesus. They said, this is too much. This is too difficult. We're turning away now. And then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew that turning from Jesus to follow anyone or anything else was foolishness because nobody could offer what Jesus offered. Nobody could do what Jesus did. Nobody was like what Jesus was like. Only Jesus could offer eternal life. There's simply nobody else worthy of following. And I think this was the same mindset that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. How could we worship this statue? How could we worship anything but our God? There's no one like him. This chapter is a challenge to set aside all lesser things and to give our worship and our allegiance solely to God. It's a call to resist the pressures that the world places on us every day to conform and embrace idolatry. There is one God, and there is nothing else like him. He alone has the power to save his people. He alone sent his son for our salvation. There's no one else worthy of our worship. So the question we have to ask and answer after this text, who will I worship? Will I worship God alone, or am I going to worship what the world says is worthy? Am I going to worship God alone even if it costs me my friends, my family, my status, my money, my promotion, even my own life? Who will you worship? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminder of this text. The reminder that calls us back to, to, to single-minded devotion to you. Because, Lord, we are so prone to wander. 
so prone to desire things that you have said are, are sinful and things that you have told us are not best for us. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, myself included, that our, our hearts and our minds would be solely and completely devoted to you. That we would not worship anybody else or anything else, but that you would be first in our minds and our hearts every single day that our time and our energy would be given to follow you and to obey all that you have commanded of us. Pray that you would be honored in the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.